They didn't realize we were seeds. They didn't realize you were seeds. They open doors so others can walk through them. Your legacy is every life you have ever touched. I'm Stella Sagliari and this is Salt the Podcast. Welcome to Salt the Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. My guest today is Zina Malas, a sexual health educator based in Amman, Jordan. Zina is a single mom to two lively girls and an intersectional feminist who uses a shame-free, body-positive approach to her teachings and is an ally to the LGBTQI community. Zina is also an avid reader who is always happy to strike up a conversation with strangers. In this episode, we speak about shame and guilt in relation to sex and sexuality, healthy communication about sex in a relationship, pornography in general, and with regards to children specifically, consent, and a few more things. Before starting the conversation, it's important to us to mention that Zina's location, which is, as I stated, Amman and Jordan, plays a role in how she tackles and answers some of the questions and topics discussed. As always, enjoy the talk and spread a word about it afterwards. Welcome, Zina. Welcome back, actually, to Solve the Podcast. You've been here before, and I'm happy to have you back, and I'm happy to talk to you today. So, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> yes, a pleasure. Yes, I think it's nice if uh, if you introduce yourself and the topic a little bit of today before I ask you the more uh, deeper questions. So I'm a sexual health educator based in Amman, Jordan. And I help educate couples, uh, individuals, families, kids, teens, anybody who needs to learn more about their sexual health, who wants, who's curious, who has any questions, uh, anyone struggling with their sexual identity or orientation or struggling to get correct information. Yes. So then my first question for you would be, what do you have to say about healthy communication about sex in a relationship so each each relationship is unique and each couple has its own idea of what if, of what a good intimate uh, sexual life is uh, what good communication is you have to understand first of all the uniqueness of each relationship and this allows us to understand that there's no blueprint for how relationships should be like people get so fixated on my relationship should be like this or If my relationship isn't like this person's relationship, then that means our relationship is in trouble. And what I tell couples is that what works for you and your partner or what feels good for you and your partner doesn't necessarily be, is not the same for other people. So one of the biggest myths that I hear when, when doing my work is that the idea that other people are having more sex or better sex than you and your partner. And that's actually very false. Because there is no average amount, you know? So one of the first questions I got asked was, what is a normal amount of sex I should be having with my husband? And I said, there is no normal. There is what works for you. So what are your expectations? How many times a week would you think is good for you, first of all? And, you know, she was like, maybe twice a week is good for me. I said, okay. And how often do you think is good for your husband? She's like, you know, I've never really asked him that. And I said, okay, let, let's start there. Let's start with what your expectations are. So discuss with your partner what their, their expectations are. What is a good amount of being intimate? And, and how do you define intimacy as well? Is it just sexual intimacy? Is it physical intimacy? Is it emotional intimacy? There are so many different layers. And with discovering what your expectations are and communicating what your expectations are, you can definitely build on that and build a healthier relationship with your partner. Also, another big myth that I hear when it comes to sexual intimacy is that the longer it takes, the better. The longer it lasts, the better. And that's not necessarily true because then it takes away the focus on pleasure for both partners. And it's on about, oh, how long can we last? Oh, we lasted an hour. Yeah, but was everyone satisfied? Did you communicate? Did you ask your partner how they're feeling? These are more important than it took me an hour how long I can last. Okay, great. You can last an hour. That's fantastic. But also there are, there are more layers to it than just that. 
there's also the misconception that you and your partner want the same things. And that's not necessarily true, which is how I said, you know, there's a discrepancy in desire between you and your partner. So like I said, you might want twice a week, your partner wants four times a week, and you need to find this common ground. You need to bridge the gap between what your expectations are and what the reality is and find something, some middle ground where both partners will be happy with it. So it's a negotiation in a way. If you don't ask, like I said, if you don't ask your partner what their expectations are, how will you know what you're working towards? Also, like I said about the intimacy, can you figure out that if what you're craving is actually emotional intimacy? Is it cuddles? Is it uh, not finding the right time? You're not in the right frame of mind. So you need to schedule intimacy. Yes, it sounds a bit boring and predictable, but actually it makes it a lot more fun because you also have something to look forward to and you can make it fun. It's about how much fun you're willing to put into it. Also, there's a part where I tell couples not to expect that every time you're going to be intimate is going to be the most mind-blowing time. There are times where it's going to be pretty average and vanilla. And there are going to be times where it's going to be, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that. That was actually really a lot of fun. So don't build up your expectations that every time has to be fantastic. So once you, I like, I like to check in with each other. So after each session, for example, that you, you're intimate with your partner, you ask them, how was this for you? What was your favorite part about it? What would you like to do more of next time? And I, I find that a lot of couples don't ask each other these questions. There's just this expectation that it's supposed to be good. And if it's not good, then our relationship is doomed. And we forget to talk to each other. But I also think, like also listening to you and the myths you're mentioning, it's so much based on this heteronormative cisgender mm -hmm. idea of what sex should be all about, right? That, okay, when the husband or the, the, the man is finished, then it's over. Or it has exactly. to be like vaginal penetration. It cannot be just, I don't know, laying there for an hour and cuddling or touching each other and giving exactly. pleasure in different ways. And I think, um, yeah, that, that it's like the man is in the center of it all, forgetting that that there, and you mentioned it, of course, that there are also other ways to be intimate with, and they're obviously not just the, 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 the heterosexual couple. And yeah, I, I just wanted to add that. And I think it's really important to, to bust those myths and um, yeah, and Definitely. not say, okay, the man had his orgasm and now it's over. And that's usually how it does end for most heterosexual couples, you know? <laughs> But that's the thing. I, I have to say that I focus more on heterosexual couples yes. because of where I'm based and yes. because of where I am and everything. So that's the, that's the norm yes. for where I am right now. But also we will get to this later on where we, we discuss uh, the effects of pornography and the effects of pornography on relationships are, are <laughs> it's a lot more than we give it credit because a lot of it is focused on the male pleasure and the scene ends when the man has had his orgasm. And that's how it carries on into our heterosexual relationships. So that's, but I'll, I'll cover that a bit later on when we discuss pornography. But again, I also like to start with the question of what is sex? Hmm. A lot of people think that sex is penetrative. It's penis and vagina. And, and I, I like to challenge people because I tell them, okay, that's the heteronormative idea that you've been grown up with, especially in this region. But how do two people of the same gender have sex, you know, there doesn't always have to be penetration. What is, what, what is sex for you? How do you define it? Uh, is it oral? Is it penetrative? Is it, uh, there's so many different definitions to it. So again, sex doesn't just have to end up with penetrative. It doesn't yeah. just have to be penis and vagina. Uh, it can also be many other things. Like we said, foreplay, you know, cuddling that is also pretty intimate you know there are so many other ways to to explore your intimacy with your partner that it doesn't just have to always end up with intercourse yeah yes so yeah but I also always like to guide my clients with the six basic sex principles when it comes to relationships and this applies to all genders and all relationships uh, the main one being it has to be consensual So nobody is forcing anything. There is respect. There are boundaries. 
It's not exploitive. Nobody is using sex as a tool for power, for leverage, to gain something, for blackmail. They're not holding something in front of the other person like money, drugs, uh, shelter, denying them access to something. It's not used as something coercive to, to, to coerce a person into having sex with them. The third one is that it's honest. You state what you want and you respect what the other person has to say. There are shared values. So for example, you don't shame the person. You tell them, for example, I am looking for a friends with benefits type of situation. Are you okay with this? And the person has the right to respond, yes or no. And you respect it. You know, yes, I'm okay with it. It's a, you know, friends with benefits situation. I'm okay with it. All right, great. Let's establish some ground rules. Or I don't believe in sex before marriage, and I hope you can respect that. And if our relationship does end up in marriage, then yes, I will be intimate, physically intimate with you. But before that, it is off the table for me, you know, and you respect the person for that. And you have to decide whether you're okay with it or you're not okay with it, you know. Also, the there is protection from STIs and HIV and unwanted pregnancies. So you discuss birth control, uh, you discuss uh, any plan of action that you would like to take uh, you both want to get tested before you're sexually intimate uh, you go to the clinic together you you rule out all of the stis and hiv and, and, and all of this and that it's pleasurable it's mutually pleasurable uh, so that the minute that there is any unwanted pain from either side you must communicate it and you focus on the pleasure of both not just on one side so within this framework i always like to guide uh, relationships with across all genders and, and all types of different relationships. Yes, there are so many important points. Yeah. I will try not to add much more to it. Yes, but thank these you, are the, the six most main important sexual health uh, principles that I like to follow. Yes, and they are very, very, very important. Yes, and communication is key. I'll just add one more thing that communication is key. Uh, increased communication increases sexual pleasure. We are not mind readers. Yes. We cannot predict what our partners want. You actually need to talk about it. And some people might find it a bit awkward. Some people might be a bit shy. Uh, but there are some tools and there's some games that I like to play and, and give to, to the couples that I work with. So there's a game that's called Yes, No, Maybe. And it's a great icebreaker for anybody who's shy with their partner. It's pretty straightforward. It's a worksheet. And it tells you, for example, it can go from the, the most uh, tamest thing. So uh, sexting, for example. Yes, no, maybe. Are you okay with it? Giving love bites or hickeys. Are you okay with it? To the more advanced stuff, are you more okay with uh, spanking, let's say? And then you say, yes, no, maybe. You get your sheet together with your, with your partner. You compare. It allows you to bond with your partner. It allows you to have fun with them, enjoy it. And, and you get to ask them a series of questions afterwards, like, oh, I thought you'd be okay with this. Oh, so you're not okay with this. Oh, you're okay with this sometimes. Okay, when are you okay with this? When would this be an okay time for us to do this? So it's all about listening instead of judging. It's about validating the person, responding to them. You know, you get to ask, like, what's your favorite part of our intimate relationship? What do you wish we could do more of? You know, and, and this allows you to have more open communication and hopefully helps you break down the walls and the barriers that you have when it comes to asking these awkward conversations, having these awkward conversations with your partner and requires you to be a bit more vulnerable. And that's basically what intimacy is all about. It's about being more vulnerable with the person that you're with. So yeah, <laughs> that's what I'd like to add. Yes. And, and also, I mean, you mentioned it already, communicating also what you like, what you want, And of course, depending on, on how we've grown up, a lot of us have grown up also with shame and guilt when it comes to, to sex and sexuality. And I want to say maybe women more than men. Mm -hmm. um, what do you have to say about, about that, about shame and guilt when it comes to sex and sexuality? How do you encounter it in your work? And what kind of um, approach do you take? How, how do you deal with it? Like you mentioned, I, I definitely agree that there uh, that women face a lot more sexual shame than men do. And I think part of the issue that we need to tackle first is that where does it stem from? And I find that most of it stems from childhood. It's a, it's a belief that you're raised with. It's culturally relevant. It's religion. 
there's this belief that maybe your body is dirty, that pleasure is sinful, it's shameful, or it's not allowed until a certain situation, which is when you're married. But, you know, we're raising these people to think that sex is, is shameful and sinful and that you should only approach it when you get married, as if the minute you get married, you're suddenly this expert that knows everything, although you've been sheltered from it your whole life. So we do find that a lot of women, especially in the region here, do have vaginismus, which is uh, muscle spasms in the vagina, and it doesn't allow for penetration a lot of the times, and it's pretty painful. And a lot of it has to do with the mental process of what you believe about yourself and uh, believing that your body is dirty or shameful and nobody should touch you, even if it's your husband, because for so long you've been taught, don't let anybody touch you. Don't, don't do this. If you do this, you're a bad person. You're a bad girl. You're a bad, you know, so on and so on. And you carry this on with you throughout your life and it causes problems later on. The thing is, is that I like to approach. So the, the approach that I use is that I'm sex positive. I'm not sex negative. Uh, it means that I don't talk about the body or sex in a dirty or negative way. I don't describe it as taboo or sinful because I realize describing and talking about it like this, it can cause distress for people. And it shows up as guilt and shame. And it cause, it, it uh, shows up as well as mental issues later on, uh, mental health issues. So I center the conversation around making sexual health normal believe it or not, I'm, I'm sure you can believe it, is that the most the most asked question I get centers around the focus of, am I normal? So because of the sexual shame, uh, the taboo of not talking about it, people don't know if they're normal or not. What is normal in my body? Even as men, I have encountered some men, you know, telling me, is my body does this, is this normal? And it's shocking that they haven't been able to talk to anybody about it. Not friends, not peers, not uh, parents. Uh, they're unaware. And again, because the most, the mo we use in our region and every other region as well, I think they use pornography as, as sex ed. And pornography is not sex education. So, But that is the only reference that some people have. So uh, I recognize that sex is a healthy part of a, of a person's life. But I also recognize that shame is a very powerful tool the society uses to put people into boxes and to label them. But it, it's responsible for a lot of mental health issues. And it makes people feel bad for who they are, not just for what they did. And it, it embeds it in, itself inside of you, making you believe that you are a bad person. It affects your self-worth. You can, you can see it's affecting your mental health on a daily basis. So Sexual shame is a feeling. It's not a fact. And I've said this before multiple times. It's just a feeling. It has nothing to do with what you are doing. It, it just likes to label us as dirty or perverted or wrong. And once you recognize that it's just a feeling, but it can show up in your self-esteem, it can create negative body image, it can cause anxiety, it can make us uh, unable to set boundaries. Um, it makes us judge ourselves and it makes us judge others as well. And sometimes that's how sexual shame shows up. It shows up not within yourself. It shows in how you're judging other people. Mm. Oh, did you see what this person did? Oh, shame on them. This is also part of your sexual shame because you're just, you know, diverting it onto another person, you know? So, so I've noticed that uh, this, with the work that I do, that the shaming part is the part that causes the most distress, not the actual sexual action. And once we recognize that, it's a lot of inner work. It's not necessarily about what you're doing outwardly or sexually. It's actually more inwardly. So what I like to focus on is I like to work on my set of values. <laughs> Who am I as a person? What do I believe is good or bad? and not what everybody else labels as good or bad. Morally, where do I stand? How does my religion play when it comes to my sexuality, if it's important to you? Are you just repeating the values that your parents have taught you? Or are these your own thoughts? You know, I also like to work with consent boundaries, because a lot of times people have a hard time saying what they're okay with, what they're not okay with, because they've been taught that they cannot be vocal about that part of their lives, their sexual health, they can't be vocal about it. So sometimes they just shut down and they allow things to happen to them 
without saying, no, actually, I'm not okay with this, you know? So I prioritize communication. I work on building healthier relationships, whether with, you know, your partners, your parents, your children, within yourself, working on your relationship with your body. I normalize the conversation about your body, and this will hopefully in turn reduce shame. And like I said, I usually see that it starts in childhood. So what we're taught in childhood, our attitudes, our beliefs, they're passed on to us. For example, I'll give you a very, very basic example, and you would not believe the amount of shame that can carry on later on into life, which is uh, if somebody sees their child touching themselves and they say, stop, what are you doing? Oh, my mm-hmm. God, this is mm-hmm. this is wrong. You should not be touching yourself like that. And you don't know the amount of damage you've done to this child because they will internalize it. Oh my God, I did something so bad. Mommy or daddy is so angry with me. Oh, touching myself there is dirty. It's shameful. It's bad. Uh, or you've, you know, your, your parent has caught you watching a kissing scene on TV. What are you watching? You're not supposed to be watching this. This overreaction that a parent has to a child can cause a lot of trauma inside. And we don't realize it until later on when it comes to our relationships. And, and that's when it manifests itself. So, you know, there's this belief that girls are supposed to be like this. Virgins. You're, yeah, you're supposed to remain a virgin until you're married. If you do anything, if you let a boy touch you before you get married, you are a bad girl. And this belief carries on and carries on. And it's just amazing what it can do to our psyche and to our mental health. I mean, I definitely grew up in a shaming culture. Um, not just in my home, I don't know, but it was also the environment around me. Um, yeah, comments from from men, from boys, uh, also some kind of abuse that happened. But it took me a really, really long time to to deal with all of this. And um, yeah, it, it was really hard. It really stays with you and it really does a lot of damage with you. And not knowing your body, not knowing that you can say no to things, not knowing that, no, if you're not a virgin, you're not a whore, or if you want to be a virgin, whatever that means, that's fine. Like, it's it's really like, there were so many things that I didn't know. I didn't even know my own body, you know, like biologically speaking. So for me, shame and guilt, it's a really, really personal topic. And the other day, one of my kids says to me, Mom, our father had four times sex in his life because he made four children. And I said to my son, I mean, first I was laughing a lot. And then I told him, actually not. He had many more times sex because sex is not just there for making babies. Sex is also for pleasure. And not every time you have sex, you make a baby. And not everybody wants to have babies. Exactly. So I was like, yeah, I told him this. And he looked at me, really? And I say, yeah, it's also something that is beautiful, that is nice. It gives you like joy. Oh, okay. It looks at me like, you know, but I was like to myself, I wish I would have had these conversations when mm-hmm. I was younger and many more conversations, but yeah, not talking about things, being shamed, feeling guilt can really cause a lot of, a lot of damage. So I'm happy that you, that you attack these different topics. Yes. But you just you just touched on something very important as well, is that um, sometimes when when we discuss sex ed, a lot of it is from the angle of reproduction. Yeah. And it never covers uh, pleasure. And I think especially the reason why it's not covered is that because I think we're worried that if we say that it's pleasurable, it's as if we're telling our children, we give you the green light to go ahead and go do whatever you want with your bodies. And that's actually not what it is. Um, I think the thing is, I notice is that pleasure is covered in one angle when it comes to sex ed, which is the male orgasm, because in order to reproduce, a male needs to release ejaculate. Yes, He needs to ejaculate. And that's the only way I've found that pleasure is covered and it's male pleasure. But I can understand the hesitation of people and parents not wanting to dis- to disclose that it can be pleasurable because they're worried that, oh, uh, my child will discover that it's something pleasurable, then that means that they'll want to go do it. And instead, what they need to be doing is focus more on the values and on their self-worth and on the respect of their bodies. And like you said, they're not allowing them to trust their own bodies. And, and we see this a lot because we take ownership of our children's bodies 
And we are responsible for our children until they turn 18 or until they leave the house or whatever it is and they go off to college and, and all this. And we are responsible for their bodies. And, and sure, we are here to guide them and we are here to help them and to navigate through life and owning their bodies. Yes, uh, we are here to guide them and to help them navigate through life. But the thing is, is that we also need to let them feel that they can trust their own bodies. And how do we do this with our children? is that, for example, if they are uncomfortable with something, something makes them feel icky or uncomfortable, especially when it comes to other people. And we've discussed this in the last podcast, for example, saying hello to people in the family or saying hello to strangers. And we tell them and we shame them. And we say, shame on you for not saying hello to auntie so-and-so and uncle so-and-so. Shame on you for not saying hello to them. You should have gave them a kiss hello because that is what good people do. Good people say hello to people in a polite manner and you give them a kiss. So first of all, you shame them that what they're doing is bad and that they are a bad person and that auntie and uncle's feelings are more important than their own feelings. So there is a reason why your child is not feeling like kissing a stranger. They're trusting their body. And what you're doing is, is you're overriding what they're believing and telling them not to trust their body And instead, that person's feelings are more important. And I'll give you an example that happened to me personally, is that I was raised with this belief that it is rude to not say hello to your elders. It is rude to not kiss your grandmother and your grandfather. And what can be done before anybody attacks me and says, but you should say hello to the grandparents. You should say hello. And I say, yes, absolutely. Say hello to them. But ask your child, how do they feel comfortable saying hello to them? You don't feel like hugging and kissing them. What would make you feel comfortable right now to say hello to them? Do you want to give them a high five? Would you like to give them a fist bump? Uh, funny enough, COVID has made it a lot more socially acceptable yes. to give high fives and, and fist bumps. Yes. And we can use that excuse now a bit yes. more. Uh, but that's what it had to take, you know, unfortunately, instead of trusting our child and saying, okay, right now, you know, my child feels like saying hello with a high five to everyone. When my child is comfortable to give you a kiss, hello, and a hug, hello, they will do it on their own without feeling pressured. And and I find that a lot, I don't know if this happens also in your culture, bribing. Do they bribe your children? Of if course. If you give me a kiss, I will give you a candy. Yes, yes. If you give me a kiss, I will give you, a, you know, chocolate. And oh, I like, give you a candy and then yeah. I want you to hug me. Or the exactly. other way around, you know. What message are you sending to these kids that if yeah. an adult gives you candy and sweets, yeah. it's okay to hug them? What happens if it's on the playground and you turn your back for a minute or you get a phone call and you can't be there to observe your child and a stranger comes up to them and says, if you give me candy or if I let you pet the dog, you, you know, you need to give me a hug and a kiss. And, and this is where I tell them, do you understand that we are grooming children like this? We need to teach them body safety. That is the first step. And it's to trust their instinct. And, and I was going to tell you a, a story about myself, which is so basic and so silly But as a grown-up, I look back on it. I was a grown-up when this happened, and I can't believe that I allowed this. It's because nobody let me feel safe in my body. Nobody let me trust my instinct and let me think that my feelings are more important than the other person's feelings. And this person was a stranger. I was on a plane years ago, maybe 15 years ago. I was on a plane, and I was a very nervous uh, flyer. And the man next to me must have been maybe 20 years older than me at the time, uh, and you know, he's like, oh, I can tell you're very nervous before you fly. I'm like, yeah, I actually have a fear of flying. I, I'm not very comfortable. And, and so I said, just, you know, I just need a moment. And I was just sitting there in my own head, praying, whatever it is, meditating that I was doing. And this man thought it, would, it was totally acceptable to hold my hand and to stroke it. A complete stranger. Yuck. And I just looked at his hand on my hand and I looked at him and I thought, I want to tell him to not touch me. But I also don't want to hurt his feelings, even though he's violating my space and he's violating my body and I'm not okay with it. I still, my first instinct was, how do I tell this man I don't want him to touch me? And I couldn't do it. And then in the end, I just ended up moving my hand. And I realized while I was studying and doing this course that the reason for this is because I was never felt, I never was taught to feel like I could trust my body. And this is something that I want to pass on to my kids and pass on to the people that I would like to educate is let your child trust their body, trust their feelings. And this will help them later on in the future. It helps when it comes to sexual harassment, 
sexual abuse, it allows them to have a voice to say, no, I am not comfortable with doing this. And, uh, and I think it's very important to educate. This is one yes, of the and, and, I like and, to educate. And you are also creating a culture of consent through that. And maybe it's, yes. it's because we started now with this, maybe it's good to go to that question. Can you share some tips with us? How we as parents, as adults, as people, as teachers, as educators, how can we create a culture of consent for our kids, but also at a later stage for people who, who didn't learn it? Yes, uh, absolutely. Consent starts at home. Creating consent uh, is, is at home. It's teaching basic permission. It's teaching respect. It's exactly how we just covered this, trusting their own bodies. They need to understand that they shouldn't do something that they feel uncomfortable doing. That's what it, that's what consent is all about. So I practice consent on a daily basis with my children. It doesn't have to be explicit. It can be as simple as, uh, "Mama, come take a photo with me. I want to take a photo with you." And if she says, "No, Mama, I'm not not comfortable taking a photo right now for whatever reason," I have to respect it. She's not comfortable right now in her body to take a photo with me. Mama, I need to. I want to hug you. Can I give you a hug today? Okay, Mama, you can give me a hug. That's fine. And people say, oh, that's ridiculous. I have to ask my child for permission every time I touch their body. And I say, generally, yes, you do. When it comes to safety, for example, crossing the road, I have to hold their hand. But it's nice to verbalize it. And it's nice to say, mama, I need to hold your hand now. Please give me your hand because we're crossing the road. It's for your own safety. You know? Also, what I need, what I like to teach my children, and I think it's very important, is that If a person doesn't say yes, if they say, mm, maybe, mm, I'm not sure, that is not consent. Yes is yes. No is no. And and that's what, and stop means stop. stop maybe also important. silence doesn't mean yes, or maybe exactly. doesn't mean yes. Exactly. And I and I find that a lot later on in life when, when um, boys try to pressure, for example, mm -hmm. women into something. Mm -hmm. And they think, well, she hasn't said no. Mm -hmm. She's given me a weird, like she's given me like, a, you know, like maybe or not now, not now doesn't mean yes. It means not now, maybe sometime in the future, maybe, but right now it's a no. And, and so this is very important, especially to teach our, our young boys. Yes is yes. No is no. Maybe is maybe doesn't mean yes. Not now means not now. It doesn't mean yes as well. So you don't want, you also, um, you want to teach that uh, your children, that they are not responsible for other people's feelings, which is what I mentioned earlier. Yes. Uh, and they have the right to say no when it comes to their bodies. Yes. You don't want also your child to be afraid to disclose abuse to you because they're worried about how it'll upset you. Yeah. Oh, I can't tell mama that something happened on the playground because it might upset her. Or maybe so, it was my fault that they were blame themselves, right? Exactly. And, and I find that that's a lot to do with shame as well, mm -hmm. internalizing it. Yes. Or maybe I did something and this is what we do. We shame victims as yeah. well. You know, somebody is, exactly. Somebody is raped and we say, well, what were you wearing? Oh, of course you were going to get raped wearing that. That's victim blaming. And <laughs> you're putting the, you're putting the, the blame on the wrong person here, you know? So yeah. What I like about, what I like about your examples or the way you're teaching consent is that It's not about consent only in the sexual uh, realm. Let's say if somebody wants to touch you, you have to say no. If somebody wants to kiss you that you don't know, you have to say no. You are already teaching them from very basic things like, no, I don't want you right now to take a photo with me. Or no, I'm not hungry. Or I don't like that food. Or I don't know. I don't want to go to the playground now. And I think by teaching it in your daily life through all kinds of things, you are internalizing this behavior. And when you are in danger, I hope at least it will be much easier for your daughter, your son, um, your child to say no, because yes. it has, it has learned, they have learned um, to say no, to, to, to express their feelings, their boundaries, to not be shamed, to not feel uncomfortable, or even mm -hmm. if they do feel uncomfortable, they still did it. So I find this really, 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 really uh, important. And it, it, I mean, you mentioned some of it last time we talked and it really made me much, much more aware of how I can teach consent to my kids. And also mm -hmm. not only to my kids to also accept when my partner is saying something to me or my friends, like the other day I went with a friend to the playground 
I hadn't seen her in a really long time. I mean, we both have kids as so I went to the playground not to play. And we were sitting on the bench and my daughter, who was two and a half, wanted to go to the actual playground and play. And I said to my friend, sorry, but I have to take her. She can't go by herself. She's a little. Do you want to come? And my friend says, no, I've been doing this forever. And now I don't want to. I want to sit on the bench and enjoy the sun. And at first I was like, she hasn't seen me in, in my head, right? In mm -hmm. such a long time. And she doesn't want to stand with me there while my daughter is playing and we can talk and hang out. And then I thought when I left her, no, it was actually pretty great what she did. She yeah. expressed her feeling, what she wanted to do. She set her boundary and she said, no, right now I want to sit here on the bench and I want to enjoy the sun. And I don't want to be in the playground with all the other children. Absolutely. So, yeah. It's, it's, that's the thing. Uh, the consent also enforces boundaries. It allows a person to, to describe and explain what they're comfortable and they're not comfortable with. I remember growing up, me saying no was like saying a swear word. Yeah. You know, yeah. what do you mean? No, it's yeah. a defying authority kind of thing. Yeah. And people think that boundaries are ways of like cutting people out of their lives. Actually, no, my boundary is I'm trying to keep you in my life by telling you how I would like to be loved and how I would like to be spoken to, you know, and it's within reason, you know? So, so yeah, I think boundaries and consent are very important and we need to model them every day for our children in every aspect of their life. Yes. True. That's another good point. Also how we are. Yes, absolutely. Yes. That, yes. that they also see, yeah, we are also acting like this towards ourselves and others. Um. Zina, you mentioned it already a few times, pornography. Um, so pornography and children, like what about when children's first experiences is through pornography? Um, because yeah. there hasn't been any conversation about sex and sexuality at home or in schools. Yes. Um, yes. And how do we so, talk to kids about it? You, you wrote, maybe just to, to write something, to read something that you wrote, Porn can send harmful, damaging, and powerful messages about sex, sexuality, and adult relationships. So, yeah, imagine the first thing your kid sees is a scene. It can. From, it like can. a hardcore scene from a porn movie. Yeah, it definitely can. I don't want to knock porn and say that it's entirely damaging. Yes. There are some benefits to pornography, obviously, uh, but that's for adults. Uh, so what I like to start with is, I, I tell every parent whose child has access to a tablet, to an iPad, to the internet, that you need to have these conversations with your children because there's no amount of, uh, you know, safe search and blocking and, you know, banning and all of this on the internet that you can do. I'm sure that something will get filtered in, whether it's accidentally on or on purpose, it will filter through somehow. If it's not on your devices, it might be on a friend's device. And, and I've seen that happen where a parent has been so vigilant about safe search and making sure that their child is not exposed to anything and all of this, only to have their child be exposed to pornographic images on the tablet of their uncle. <laughs> so there is no amount of, of wrapping them in a bubble that you can do that will protect them forever. It will not happen. So you need to be prepared to have these conversations. Um, so what I like to start with is obviously put the safe search on, uh, second of all, have the conversations with your children. They don't need to know details. You just need to let them know that there exists images that are not for children and they exist all over in TV, in movies, in books, in blah, blah, blah. Some things are made for adults by adults only. If you ever come across images that you think are not appropriate for your age, images of naked people, for example, please let me know you are not in any trouble. I just do this for your own safety to make sure that you don't see things that are not, you know, that are inappropriate for your age. We, we block these images for you. So this is for your own protection. And sure enough, my child, because I've had these conversations with them, has come up to me and said, mom, I think I saw something inappropriate. It happened accidentally. She retraced the steps. She showed me what happened. She showed me the image that she saw. And I thanked her. And I said, thank you, Mama, so much for coming to me and telling me this is exactly what we prepared for. Well done. I'm so proud of you. You're not in any trouble. 
And that's fantastic. And I was able to filter the searches again properly and make sure that this would never happen again. And just knowing that I did that and having her come to me, instead of hiding it from me, going and telling her cousin about it, creating more conversations about it with people who are not prepared to have these conversations, I was so proud of her that she was able to come and talk to the right person and deal with it in the correct manner. There was no getting angry. There was no shaming her. There was no, oh my God, this is so inappropriate. Why did you do this? Why did it? There was none of that. That was well done. High five. Good job. You spotted it immediately and you told the right person and we can take care of the situation right now. Um, The problem is, is that 70% of young people below the age of 15 will be exposed to pornographic images, whether on purpose or accidentally. It is going to happen. And the problem is, is that if we do not give our children any sex education, they will use pornography as a tool for sex education. They will think that this is what sex is, and this is what a healthy sexual relationship looks like. And we as adults know that porn is anything but that. Pornography is fantasy. It is make-believe. It is made for adults by adults. There are so many niche categories that are very explicit. And if a child sees that without the correct tools and the right knowledge, they are they will be shocked, they will be traumatized, they will think that this is normal, and they will go on to have sexual relationships that might be very inappropriate. Um, you know, uh, porn is not realistic. It doesn't teach consent. You do not see any of the performers saying, are you okay with this? Are you comfortable? Is that a yes? Can I touch you? Can I do this? So automatically people will think that they can just, you know, they'll see somebody who's uh, dressed um, a bit more sexually provocative and they'll think, oh, I can touch this person because this is what happens in porn. No, you can't. You need to ask for permission before you touch. So it is definitely not a healthy uh, model for relationships. It also is unrealistic with regards to body image for men and women. Women think that they need to look like a porn star in order for men to be attracted to them. Men think that they have a a penis problem, a size problem, because performers have above average sizes. uh, And and that's not mentioned ever. Um, It doesn't represent protection. A lot of pornography doesn't show, uh, you know, condom use, uh, testing before they get before they perform. So people just assume, oh, you know, porn actors do it all the time and they're not sick and they're fine. And but nobody sees what goes behind the scenes, how much testing happens, uh, you know, condom use uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, they don't show um, intimacy. There's a lack of emotional connection between the performers. A lot of it is violent. A lot of it is aggressive, especially towards women. Um, there's this new thing now that everyone's talking about choking. You can kill someone. This is actually very, very dangerous. And the amount of nurses that I know who have told me that they are seeing a rise of patients coming into the emergency room with choking and strangulation marks because their boyfriends or their husbands or their partners have repeated what they've seen in a porn movie and they think it's pleasurable. And without consent, without checking in with your partner first, it's unbelievable. There's like an epidemic of, of, of choking going on right now. And it's it's horrific. Um, there's also a lack of focus on female pleasure. Like we mentioned earlier, that orgasm of the man usually ends the scene and that's it. There's no focus on female pleasure. There is an exaggeration right now. That's also happening when it comes to female pleasure with regards to squirting, for example. Uh, not everybody can squirt like that. A lot of it is exaggerated. A lot of it is not filmed back to back like that. It's filmed in, on different days. Uh, and there is, they are very hydrated, you know, uh, it makes women think that if they do not squirt, then there, there's something wrong with them. Uh, a lot of it is just fantasy. It's role playing. And, and again, if, if people are not aware of all of this before they are exposed to it, and it's their first exposure to sex, uh, then they are gonna, they're not going to have the tools to understand what they're watching. Um, a lot of times I find with women is that they think that they have to perform the way that a, a porn star does. And a lot of times women are performing. They're not thinking about what is happening with their bodies. They're not thinking, oh, this feels good. This feels pleasurable. Oh, I'm enjoying this. It's no. How can I please my partner? Let me perform for my partner. Let me act in a way that I've seen on screen that I think my partner will enjoy. 
but there's never any focus on what I want. And at the end of it, I'm like, oh, wait a second. I'm feeling like I have not, you know, what about me? Nobody's asked me what I wanted. So yes, uh, you do things to please your partner and you're not even sure you want to do it sometimes. And an experience should be mutually desirable. And that is definitely the main issues that I have with, with pornography, but also at the same time, in the right context, with the right tools, it can be a pleasurable experience. It is a very niche experience. You can find all sorts of, of, uh, of, of people represented in it, you know, but it also fetishizes a lot of people, I find. You know, there's an Asian category. There's a, you know, a black category. And it's, it also fetishizes people. And it makes them objects as opposed to real human beings with real feelings with, you know, and, and that is, uh, that is why it is very, very important to discuss pornography with children. You do not need to start out explicitly with your kids. You can just start out, like I said, explaining that there are images out there that are inappropriate for children. And if you do come across them, please let me know. We can have a discussion about it and you can add whatever values and, and beliefs that you have to it. If you think, you know, this is uh, sinful or whatever it is, then you can say, I don't agree with images of naked people online. You, you express whatever your beliefs are, you know, and, and that's up to the parents to do it. But please do not do it from a place of shame and do not do it from a place where it is sex negative, that sex is all dirty and disgusting and it's gross and, and you shouldn't be looking at this, you know, it should be done from a positive way in an open space and a safe space where your child can always come back to you and ask you questions. And that's how I like to approach porn, basically. Thank you, Zina. Thank you so You're much. Welcome. Thank you. What is your question for me? I wanted to know how you are raising your children in what type of environment when it comes to their sexual health and their bodies. Would you say that you are um, creating a safe space for them? You are modeling consent for them? You... Uh, you are doing it in a sex positive way. I know you've mentioned some of the things before already, but I'd like to know more detail about how you are conveying these messages to your children. Because you also live in a European country. You, you know, there is, uh, it's a bit more explicit, I think, where you live as well. It's more yes. in your face. And yes. I'm just wondering how you try to navigate through these conversations with your kids. Yes. So as I said, um, I grew up with a lot of guilt, with a lot of shame. It's traveled with me forever. Um, and had a lot of negative consequences. Um, so for me, it was already clear from the start that I will do it differently with my kids. And uh, when I say I grew up in such an environment, I don't only mean or exclusively mean my parents, but also relationships I was in, um, yeah, the culture that was surrounding me, the people, so on and so forth. Also sex ed at that time in school that was very, very minimal. So yes, for me, it was already clear based on my personal experiences that I don't want to do it like this, that I want to do it differently. So my partner and I, we've created a pretty much open, uh, yeah, open culture in our home. So the kids can talk about anything. They can come and ask us anything. And, you know, it's one thing if you say theoretically, yeah, you can tell mom everything. Mom won't get upset or your dad won't get upset. And it's different if you practice it. So you must practice it. You cannot just use words. And then your kids will come with something and then you shame them or you get upset or you blame them because then they will be like, okay, but you told me this and now you're doing something completely different. So yeah, we are very open uh, with our children if they have questions. So um, they know, of course, not uh, our daughter, she's two and a half, but the boys know how, um, yeah, how sex works, what happens there. Of course, we first did not mention, um, as you said, we first said, okay, I'm like, we came together with your father and we hug very tight or things like that. But um, now they do know the, the whole process of it. Um, yeah. We talk about menstruation period. Um, we talk about consent a lot. Um, and uh, there was still actually a part missing in that. And your converse, our conversation last time helped me a lot. And I mentioned it also in this uh, podcast that first I was teaching more consent uh, on a sexual way, like telling them if somebody touches you and you don't want it, you have to say no. Um, you have to say no to this. Um, this is not good. But talking to you made me realize, no, I need to teach consent on a daily basis with basic things. That when uh, one of the kids says no to something, and it's not something unreasonable, obviously, that I have to accept it, that I should not keep going and try to convince him. 
um, and that I should also teach them, look, now your sister, she doesn't want this. You have to accept it. No means no, or she didn't react, like as you said before, and making them understand that no is a complete sentence. And our conversation helped me a lot to incorporate teaching consent much, much more in our daily lives and making it more explicit and more visible. So yeah, we are we are very, very open. And the other day, actually, um, something happened to one of our kids. One of his friends did something, um, I mean, not... It's not that something really bad happened, but it was something that wasn't appropriate. And he immediately expressed it to his friend. He says, mm -hmm. don't do that again. And then he came to me and he told me right away. And um, we had a conversation and he told his father. And um, we also told him, thank you so much for telling us. This is a safe space. We are proud of you. Um, we love you. You didn't do anything wrong. And we are very happy that that you shared this with us, you know, even though it, it wasn't something super crazy, but it was great to see that he came straight to us and he told us, mom, I didn't like it. I told him it was weird. And yeah. And, and um, so we are building up on this, you know, and um, that's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. I love that you've created a safe space for your child, that they're comfortable to tell you anything and and you can continue guiding them through everything and it's it's beautiful that's fantastic you're doing yes. a great job thanks thanks zina yeah and i learned also a lot from you to be honest and i'm still learning also having this talk with you today and um yeah and also like telling them if you don't want to hug somebody you don't hug somebody if, like yesterday a friend came over to play and he left he just said bye and the father was like hey look at them give the hand shake hands do this and i say no it's fine he does what he feels comfortable with Mm -hmm. In this house, we don't judge, you know. Yeah. So it's also like spreading the words to others and having mm -hmm. these conversations with others and opening yeah. up. And also having these conversations with my friends, um, especially with my Greek friends. We see like that we grew up in a similar culture, you know, and we also allow now each other to share our own journey on this and our own shame story and guilt story. And it open up it opens up more space and gives. Yeah, permission to others to also share, you know. Exactly. So, um, and also like help each other. How would you deal with this? My daughter did this. How can I do it? You know, like as a yeah. community to help each other. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit of a of a sneak peek into my home. That's beautiful. I love it. Yes. Thank you, Zina. Thank you Thank so you. much for Thank today. You so much for again. having me again. <laughs> and yes, thank you to everybody for listening. Um, if you want to know more you can connect of course with Zina you can follow her on Instagram if you have questions you can reach out to her she's very responsive and very approachable and yeah spread the message about this podcast and thank you so much everybody for listening something that is loved is never lost I'm Stella Sagnari and this is Salt the Podcast Salt the Podcast Salt the Podcast